Today's scripture is Acts 12, verses 1 through 11. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged in the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when we saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off of his hands. And put on your sandals. And he did this also. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. For thought, for though he was seeing a vision, when he had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Morning. So in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's about to ascend into heaven, and he tells his disciples, All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. It's past tense. Jesus already has all authority. His kingdom has come. That's good news, isn't it? Marvelous news. But for all of us, there's times where circumstances seem so overwhelming that our faith in God's sovereignty, in his authority, in his love are sorely tested. It may be an upsetting political situation, our culture's continual moral slide, maybe a health crisis in your own life or in a loved one, maybe a relational difficulty, marriage problems, whatever it might be, the circumstances can suddenly seem huge, and we begin to wonder, where is Jesus? We begin to doubt deep down, whether Jesus really cares. Or if he does care, maybe he isn't powerful enough to handle what's going on in our lives. Does he really have the power to change things? I know that I have felt overwhelmed by circumstances at times where they just seem so big in my life, and I wonder where Jesus is. 
seems like the kingdom of this world is winning too often. So if Jesus is Lord and has all authority, then why doesn't he do something? Why don't we see his power at work? Well, the Bible teaches that someday Jesus will set all things right. So everything will be set right. In the meantime, we do live in a fallen world and there's struggle and difficulty. And we know that Jesus is just being patient so that more people can come to Christ before he sets all things right, we're told in Romans. But in the meantime, we're told that he's working for the good of his people, that he is working out his kingdom. And yet what's hard for us sometimes is his power is expressed in surprising ways, ways we didn't expect. Our story today in Acts chapter 12, I think, is a wonderful one that's meant to inspire our faith so that no matter how big our circumstances seem to be, that our God is far bigger. And He is working out something incredibly good, that He is all-powerful, in control, and is always working for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to to his purpose, and that's us. Pray with me. Lord, as we look at this story together, I pray that it would inspire our faith because we need to have eyes of faith that will see bigger and beyond our circumstances. We need to see, Lord, how much bigger you are than the things we're going through. May your spirit open our eyes today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look first at the power of the world, because the world is definitely powerful. Those first four verses, it talks about about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to do evil to them, to do harm to them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Who is this Herod guy? Well, this is Herod Agrippa. Remember, Herod the Great was the one that was reigning when Jesus was born, and he killed all the babies of Bethlehem, but Jesus and Mary and Joseph escaped. Well, then he had a son, Archelaus, who had this son, Herod Agrippa. Well, Herod the Great, before he died, was feeling threatened by his own son, Archelaus, Herod Agrippa's father, so he had him strangled, put to death. That's what kind of family this was. Just be glad you weren't one of the Herods, you know. (laughs) So as a little boy, he didn't have a father anymore, so Herod Agrippa was sent to Rome. He was raised in Rome. He learned all the ways of politics. He became best friends with a couple of the future emperors, Caligula and Claudius, and that's why he got this position, because they put him in power and gave him all kinds of land. He had a little bit of Jewish blood in him, and he knew how to get on the Jews' good side. (laughs) He, He could do certain building projects for the Jews. He could follow certain Jewish rules. He supported the temple. You know, he did certain things to get on the good side of the Jewish people in Israel, but it was famously said that he was a Jew in Judea and a pagan in Rome whenever he went there. He was just a good politician, right? He knew how to play to the people's favor. 
and he knew how to wield worldly power. So he throws his hands, it says, literally in the Greek, he threw his hands on some Christians in order to do them great harm, and then he takes James, the apostle, and puts him to death. This is the first apostle to have been put to death. But it's certainly not the last. But up to this point, the apostles had been protected, so, you know, the attack is upping its game now. Things are getting tougher for the early church. And so, ever the politician, (laughs) we see in verses 3 and 4, notice when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And when he seized him, he put him into prison, put this incredible guard around him, 16 soldiers, four at a time, two chained to him, two at the gate, so that there's no way he could ever possibly escape, right? (laughs) And he was basically currying favor with the Jews who hated the Christians, but he couldn't execute them during the Passover feast because that would make the Jews mad, so he's got to wait till the end of the feast. But his plan is to execute Peter as well. You see, like a good politician, he seeks to maintain power by controlling public opinion in Judea and intimidating somebody, the opposition, and showing violence to them. That's the typical way politics works. And in this case, it was the Christians that were receiving the intimidation and the violence. So again, he puts Peter under extraordinary security. There's no way he can escape. (laughs) Now, think about this for a minute, how it had to feel being part of the early church there in Jerusalem. This would be pretty scary, right? I mean, this is a big circumstance. Things look really bad. If he is able to wipe out the apostles, this could be the end of the whole Christian movement. It's got to be scary. And God can look pretty small in the face of such circumstances, can't he? Because the circumstances look so big and we just kind of can't see God there at all sometimes. And we wonder where he is and what he's doing. I'm sure the early church, at least a number of them, were panicking. Thinking, oh no, what do we do now? All the power of the state is being turned against us and we have no power. We're in trouble. Let me just say that I I see many of us as Christians panicking about the state of politics in our country, about the state of the world morally, and and getting really anxious and upset. And and it's a natural response. Let me just say that probably, I'd be surprised if all of us haven't responded that way to some degree because we have this natural built-in fight-or-flight response, right? And things look a little threatening. We, We get anxious. The adrenaline kicks in. So I think probably all of us in this room have felt that to some degree, But I I see more and more anxiety and fear being expressed. What if this person gets elected? What if this law gets passed? What if this law doesn't get passed? What if the state begins to turn on us Christians even more fully than they've already begun to to some degree? We've got to do something. (laughs) We've got to control things. We've got to somehow get the government on our side. I, I just think that's a natural response, and it's... We get scared. 
But I don't believe God wants us to react in fear. Yes, the world around us does have some power. We see it displayed here in all its force. But it's limited. Basically, all the world has to offer is what we see in Herod. We see violence, intimidation, and controlling public opinion. That's really what the world has to offer. But as we're about to see, the world's power is nothing, nothing compared to God's power. So let's look at the overwhelming power of God. You've already heard the story of Peter's rescue, right? I mean, it's amazing. (laughs) The church is praying, we're told. And as they're praying, they're they're concerned, and, and Peter's asleep. I don't know how he slept. I don't know if he was just so exhausted or just trusting God fully. I don't know, but he's asleep. In fact, he's in such a dead sleep that the, you know, the angel comes and says, Hey, Peter, get up. Come on, I'm getting you out of here. Peter won't wake up. He's finally got to hit him, <laughs> whacked him to wake him up. And if you, if you pay attention to the story, I think it's hilarious. He says, come on, get up. Okay, get up, stand up. Okay, get dressed. Put your shoes on, Peter. Gird yourself. He has to walk him through every step, every detail, because Peter's like so out of it, he has no clue what's going on. And then he leads him out past the guards. The chains fall off. He, he leads him out past the guards. He leads him through the gate. It says the gate opens up automatica, automatically, <laughs> by itself. God <laughs> opens the gate. And he walks out, and he keeps walking, and he's still groggy. He thinks, wow, this is a great dream. I really like this dream. (laughs) This is really fun. And suddenly he realizes, this is real. This is real. (laughs) I just think it's hilarious. And then listen to what happens next. We didn't have time to read it beforehand, but verse 12 and following. And when he realized that, wow, God's rescued me, He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark. He comes in later in Acts several times, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. So he's pounding on the gate. You know, there's a courtyard probably there in the house, courtyard. He's knocked at the door of the gate. A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. She's so excited. Wow, guess I can't believe it. And so she runs into the house and starts talking to them and tell them that an announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you're crazy. You're nuts. He can't be standing out there. Herod's got him under such secure conditions. There's no way he could be at the gate. Rhoda, you are nuts. And it says in the Greek, in the tense, that they started having an argument that went on for some time. No, you're crazy. No, he's really there. No, no way. You must be seeing his angel. I don't know where they came up with that, but, you know, they're just, no, really, he's at the gate. It's like, and it went on and on. In the meantime, Peter's standing there knocking at the gate. Come on, you guys. Herod's the army's probably right behind me. I mean, I don't even know how I got here, but please open the gate. I don't want to get arrested again. 
It's a crazy scene, isn't it? I mean, it's just wacko. And finally, they go open the door, and they're amazed, it says. Well, yeah, they're shocked. (laughs) You know, a lot of stories in the Scriptures don't have people's names, but Rhoda's name is given. Why is her servant girl's name given in this story? Well, to be honest, I think it's because one of those... Remember, the early church didn't have the written Scriptures like we do. So they passed on stories like this verbally. And I think this was one of the stories they loved to tell. <laughs> the Rhoda story. <laughs> Let's talk about, you know, when Peter got, he had got, you know, knocked and kicked and had to get out of there and they let out and, and then Rhoda wouldn't answer the door. And, was, and so they told this great story about Rhoda. Isn't it interesting how nobody looks very good in this story? Do they? I mean, the early church was praying, but whatever they were praying apparently wasn't what they got because they're just like blown away by what happened. They were praying for something else. I don't know what. I like the way N.T. Wright put it. I find all this strangely comforting, (laughs) partly because Luke is allowing us to see the early church for a moment, not as a bunch of great heroes and heroines of the faith, but it's the same kind of muddled, half-believing, faith one minute and doubt the next sort of people as most Christians we all know. <laughs> like us, right? I mean, that's just what they were. they were. They were struggling to learn to trust God and walk with Him. And, you know, but, but what a great story, isn't it? Because you see all the power of Herod, the might of Rome's elite soldiers. He's kept probably in the Antonia Fortress, which was so secure, and he's got chains and gates, and none of this, all the power of the state, none of this is any hindrance to what God wants to do, is it? None. (laughs) None. So let's look at the last few verses, and then I'm going to make some conclusions. The last few verses really demonstrate God's overwhelming victory here. Verse 18 and following, Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. (laughs) I'll bet. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Well, they were kind of innocent bystanders, but Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Totally frustrated. Here, I'm going to please the Jews. And then Peter slips away. He doesn't know what to do. He goes down to Caesarea, a frustrated old king. Verse 20, now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. I think he was just angry. And with one accord, they came to him and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, the voice of a god and not of a man. Now think about this. You know, they want food is what they want. So what do they do? Well, they're flattering him. Oh, yeah, the voice of a god. I hope he gives us, you know, some really good grain this year. Yeah, yeah, right, voice of a God. And he's eating it up. He loves it. 
He loves it. And immediately, immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. This story is told by Josephus, the Jewish historian, who says Herod was all dressed in silver and in the sun. It just shone brightly. The people could hardly look. He was so glorious and marvelous and wonderful and he's eating all this up. And then he gets attacked by worms immediately, and Josephus tells us it took five days of torture, of being eaten from the inside out by worms, till he died. Utter, complete humiliation. Why? Because he didn't give God the glory. It looked like Herod was in charge, didn't it? But who was really in charge? And then verse 24. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. The word of God expands. The word of God goes forth, and the church, which looks like it, looked like it might be on its last legs, is suddenly expanding like crazy. So the passage begins with Herod on the throne, James dead, Peter in prison. And how does the passage end? Jesus on the throne, Herod dead, and Peter and the Word of God set free. Amen? Who's in charge? (laughs) You see, the purposes of God can never be thwarted by the power of man. Now you may think, yeah, but... But James got executed, and that was terrible. Why did God let that happen, but then he freed Peter? Yeah, but think about it from a Christian perspective. Yeah, James got executed. Where did he go? Straight to heaven. Man, he got to avoid all the other stuff that Peter's going to have to deal with until he finally gets executed. He got to go be with Jesus. That's not a lose situation. That's a win. And Peter gets to stay around and do more ministry. That's a win too. You see, with God, it's always a win-win. No matter how bad it looks, it's a win-win. Because God's purposes always end up getting accomplished because all authority has been given to Jesus. And he is reigning no matter how it looks out there. Romans 8.28, keep that in mind. For God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. That's everyone. If you're learning to love God, you've been called to follow him, that's you. And he works all things, good, bad, everything, for your good. That's what you can count on. It's always a win-win situation. So this is an amazing story of rescue, isn't it? But why is it here, really? I mean, what's the point? Why did Luke include it here, kind of between the beginning of the church in Antioch and then the establishment of of the ministry of Paul, the first missionary journey? Why did he include this story about Peter right in the middle? Well, I want to draw four conclusions that I think are important for us to hear as we think about this passage. First conclusion... I want to make a conclusion about prayer, about prayer. 
Think about this early church. They were gathered in prayer, which was the right thing to do. They were praying hard. We are to be people of prayer. And when things get huge, <laughs> circumstances get big, pray. Pray. But be careful what you pray for. You know, I don't know what they were praying for. We're not told. But apparently they were not praying that God would bring Peter out of prison because that's not what they were looking for, was it? I don't know if they were praying, you know, soften Herod's heart so he'll at least keep him in jail or, or have him die a noble death or I don't know what they were praying, but they obviously were not praying for what happened because they didn't believe it, what it did. <laughs> so I think this is a warning for us maybe to not pray too specifically. I mean, sometimes God may lead you to pray for a specific thing occasionally, but I think it's important to not pray too specifically or we will miss what God is actually doing. I think we do that a lot because God's plan may not be your plan. And if you are looking for one specific thing, you might miss what God is actually doing. You know, if you're praying, God, I have a prodigal child and I need you to bring someone into his or her life who will disciple him or her and help them know you because they're walking away. And, you know, that would be a good thing, right? But when you pray that specifically, God may be doing all kinds of things to reach your prodigal and you might miss it because you're looking for one specific thing, and then you get frustrated because you feel like God's not answering your prayer. Do you get my point? Or, Lord, Lord, I need you to get my husband to start going to church. Okay, that could be a good thing. But maybe God has other ways of reading, reaching your husband, and maybe, you know, praying a specific way, you might miss what God actually wants to do to reach him or her. I'm just saying I think this passage helps us see that we should not come with expectations of what God should do, but we should come expectant of what God will do, that he will work, but he will work in his own way. So maybe our prayers most often need to be pretty broad. Lord, work and give me eyes to see you at work. Lord, somehow work in your greater purposes to bring my husband or my child to you, but Lord, do it your way. Your will be done, not mine, so that our eyes are open and we can see, because God may have a totally different plan than we have. And there's some really wrong teaching out there that's kind of the prayer of faith that says, you know, you just need to decide what you want God to do, and you just need to pray hard and pray hard and pray hard and God is obligated to answer that prayer. Well, that's just false teaching. And it's created a lot of really frustrated Christians who feel like, well, it must be my fault then that I don't have enough faith. Well, maybe God just has another plan. You see, prayer is not to get God in line with our plans. Prayer is to get us in line with God's plans. Prayer is not to get God in line with our plans. Prayer is to get us in line with God's plans. Second conclusion. Jesus is Lord. God is in control no matter how things look. Don't be afraid of what the world's doing and especially the political world out there. Don't be afraid of what's going on out there. 
no matter what threats you might get. They may even take your life, but that can't harm your soul, Jesus says. In the big scheme of things, they're powerless. They're powerless. Think about being in third grade, and the third grade bully comes up to you and starts bullying you, and, you know, that can be intimidating and scary unless you've got the rock, Dwayne Johnson, standing right next to you on your side. Then that third grade bully doesn't look so big, does he? Or someone's coming at you in a rowboat, and you're standing on a nuclear aircraft carrier. You know, that's really all the power that the world has. And it can't harm you. It can't waylay God's plan. I just want to read a couple verses that highlight this. Isaiah chapter 40. Because I think it's so important for us to understand that God is bigger than all of this. Isaiah 40 verses 15 and following. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he, God, lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They're regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Proverbs, good one to memorize. Proverbs 21.1. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. What did God do with Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on earth? He said, ah, you didn't give glory to me. You know what? I'm going to make you like a beast. You're going to be crazy for seven years, and you're going to eat grass. <laughs> I'll humble you. You think you have power? You don't have any power. And then a great psalm, I'll just read part of it, Psalm 2 that reminds us of the incredible power of Jesus. Psalm 2 begins this way. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed Messiah, saying, let's tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Yeah, we can do it, the nations say. What does verse 4 say? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He'll speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Down in verse 10, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord and rejoice with trembling. Verse 12, kiss the son. That's bow down before him in abject humility. Kiss the son that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Who's in charge? Jesus is. Jesus is. There is absolute futility in opposing God and his purposes. So we don't have to fear who's ever in power. We don't have to fear whoever gets elected, whatever laws gets passed. Our job is to follow the Lord, glorify him, and serve him no matter what the world around us does, and don't look to the power of the state to further the kingdom of God. That gets us in trouble every time. It has throughout history. The Jews here, what are they doing? They're catering and compromising with Herod because they want things to go well for them so that they're doing whatever they can to stay in his good graces, and he's manipulating them through 
through public opinion. How well did that go for them? Well, 25 years later, what happened? The Romans turned on the Jews and destroyed their entire nation and destroyed the temple. It never works to compromise to win the favor of the state, the political powers that be. Rather, we are to do like the Christians here, honor the state. We're told to do that, pay our taxes, etc., when it doesn't conflict with Jesus as Lord. (laughs) But don't trust in the state or expect that somehow it's going to help you. If you put your hope in government, you will end up compromising your relationship with God and it will do you harm. The church throughout history has experienced that. As we bonded ourselves to the state, we ended up doing things like the Crusades and the Inquisition, things like the moral majority and other things where we're trying to tie ourselves to the state got us into trouble. The state will always turn back to violence, intimidation, and controlling, manipulating public opinion to get its way, and so we can't tie ourselves to that or we will be in trouble. And then... My fourth point I want to make, fourth conclusion, is this. Big God, small circumstance. If you see God as big, your circumstance will look a lot smaller. What big thing are you going through right now? Again, is it a a health situation that you're struggling with? Is it a relationship struggle? Is it a financial difficulty? See, it's all in your perspective, how you see God in that. Do you see a big circumstance and therefore a very small God? Or do you see a big God and therefore your circumstances are actually a lot smaller than you thought? Yes, we get anxious, but we can get perspective. And let me just say this. Why did Luke write this story in such vivid detail? I mean, it's a great story, isn't it? All the little details of how Peter escapes and Rhoda and all of that. Well, I think he did that because he wanted the early church to tell the story over and over and over. He wanted it to be so vivid in their minds that every time they ended up in a big circumstance, they would say, wait a minute, (laughs) tell me the story of Rhoda again. Tell me the story of Rhoda because I need to be encouraged right now. I need to remember that we have a big God. I'm losing perspective here, so tell me again the story of Rhoda. And so little kids would say, hey, tell me the story of Rhoda. (laughs) I can identify with that. We can all identify with the early church years just kind of muddled and confusing. So let's remember when we're going through difficulties, struggles, big things, or they feel big. Let's remember the time Jesus crushed Herod under his feet and freed Peter from prison. And when you get overwhelmed, tell yourself the Rhoda story again. That your faith might be bigger than your circumstance. Let's pray. Lord, what an encouraging story this is. (laughs) And what an encouragement to, to remember how big you are. Lord, give us eyes to see that you are far bigger than our circumstances because you know how weak we are and how easily we get overwhelmed by what's going on in our lives. Give us eyes to see that you have all authority in heaven and earth. And you're always working it all 
for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.